Uh, we're going to go to the book of James, chapter, chapter 2. Who wrote the book of James? It's kind of a trick question, right? What was his name? Yaakov, right? That was his Hebrew name. James is a transliteration of a transliteration of not very good. It's just, it's not his name, right? You can call it James, it's fine, but he, he wouldn't answer to that if you, you know, if you approached him that day and age. Um, remember, we, we read that short story about James being, being martyred um, in the year, I think it was 62, right before the destruction of the temple. But before he did so, we think anywhere between the year 48 to the mid-50s, he wrote this letter. Now, was the New Testament in existence at the time that he wrote this letter? No, not as we know it today. No. So what he's doing is he's writing to people who already have a copy of the Hebrew text, the Hebrew Tanakh, the Old Testament, as it's sometimes called. He's writing to them and, and basically uh, giving them like some, some very practical advice. And um, he's telling them, do this and don't do this. It's not very theological, pinheaded. It's not a lot of deep stuff. It's just like, here, this is how you prove your faith. This is what mature faith looks like. A lot of this is influenced by two things. You guys remember me um, talking about what two things really influenced James? The book of the book of Proverbs is one, and then the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to hear a lot of Sermon on the Mount language through James. Now, James was related to who? Yeshua. He was his James Yaakov was Yeshua's younger brother. Okay, he was born to Mary. And he, he came after, after Yeshua. He describes himself as what to Yeshua? A servant or a slave of Yeshua, right? Yeah. All right. With that, we're going to get into James 2. And he says, my brothers. Oh, could I get, Bob, would you mind bringing that board up to like right here for me? He says, my brothers, practice the faith of our Lord Yeshua. The Lord of glory. Now, in Greek there, he is basically using the equivalent of the Hebrew Shekinah. He's describing Yeshua. Now, the complete Jewish Bible has the glorious Messiah. I crossed it out in mind. That's wrong. Um, sometimes David Stern just, I don't know why he's translating things in certain ways. But he translated as the glorious Messiah. It should be the Lord of glory. He uses the Greek word kurios. The Lord of glory, which, number one, speaks to me in the year as early possibly as the year 4880 D. James, the brother of Yeshua, is describing Yeshua as the Lord of the Shekinah. He is the embodiment of the very glory of God. Think about that. We call that Christology, what we, what we know and believe about Christ, Messiah, and his divine nature. So does that indicate that James thought maybe he was just a man? That maybe he was just like, you know, he was just born of a woman and maybe he got glory. No, he says that he's the embodiment of the Shekinah. That's huge, right? And he says, without showing favoritism. All right, so here we're going to get into kind of like this really interesting theoretical uh, story here that James is going to take us in. He says, suppose a man comes into your... Now, what do your translations have right there? Assembly. Synagogue? Anybody have church? Raise your hand. I think King James has church. It's not. Okay. I wrote an article several years ago. I did a, a deep study on this word. It's the Greek word synagogin here. If you're as assembly or church, cross it out and write synagogue. Synagogue. Okay? The translators, especially the King James translators, they wanted to erase a lot of the Jewishness of the New Testament. 
So they would translate it as church. And they, they strategically tra- left synagogue in the Greek. They left it synagogue in the translation um, in some really strategic places. Like um, in one is Revelation 3, the synagogue of Satan. Really, really a malicious kind of translation there they had going on. But in the King James, I think in the King James, it has church here. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but synagogue. So this right here tells us that at least um, from 48 to 55, where are the believers meeting? Where is their frame of reference in terms of corporate worship? In a synagogue. In a synagogue. Yeah. I mean, these are by and large, this is a Jewish movement, a Messianic Jewish movement that believe in Yeshua and they're meeting in the synagogues. Okay. There was, there was no such thing as a separate religion where they met in a separate building called a separate thing. They met in the synagogues. Now, synagogan can be um, like, remember when um, the, the Ephesians were shouting down Paul and they said that um, they, they said that great is Artemis, the Ephesians. That, it used the Greek word ekklesia there, that the assembly was in an uproar, ekklesia. Sometimes we as a body, as, like a, as a people group, are described as the ekklesia. But in terms of a physical structure, James is talking about a synagogue, synagogan, a meeting hall, an assembly hall. Okay? But he says, suppose a man comes into your synagogue wearing gold rings and fancy clothes. Let's pause there because during the Roman era... It was very customary to wear rings. Men and women would wear a lot of rings and it would be a, a sign of status, right? Um, and a lot of, it would show your different class that you were in in the Roman society. You remember, the Romans were a class society. They had, they had a number of different classes. And you could tell by looking at someone what class they were in. It was very hard to move from one class to the other. You could do it, but it, you, you know, it would take prolonged military service or a lot of money or being married into a different class. But your rings would reveal to other people what class you are a part of. Okay? There was actually um, – I read, I read one commentary. It was talking about how Romans would actually go and rent rings for events and put them all on their fingers. All right? Now, why would they do that as a way of like kind of upping the anti-right and showing I am, I am more wealthy than you? But what's ironic is that they just rented the rings, right? It's kind of it's funny. We, things just don't change, do they? But, you know, they kind of they come in with these rings and, you know, they're like, oh, just decked out and everything. And they're like, look at my rings. And, and they come into the synagogue. And now they're coming into the synagogue to presumably worship the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what they're doing it decked out with all these rings, right? And I can't stand that because it's like they're, they're coming in and they're kind of like their chest is puffed up. Picture this guy walking in and... I'm here now, okay? Everybody can look at me. Look at all my rings. And he's like probably waving his hands around more than he should. And he's drinking his coffee. Like, oh, you know. But he's stealing glory from the God of Abraham, as in Jacob, right? He's, he's wanting a piece of that glory and that attention, right? And, and, then it, he, and then James says, but then also a poor man comes in. Now, it, it uses the word uh, toso in the Greek, toso, which literally means one who is hunched over like a beggar. It's one who's bent over lowly like a beggar. Okay, so picture this guy comes in, puffed up, lots of rings, right? Lots of bling. Looks, uh, what do you say, drippy? I'm looking over here at where the young people are. Drippy? Is that the thing? Okay. Dapper, yeah. And then you got a guy coming in hunched over, right? And he smells like he slept under a bridge, right? Picture that. And maybe he, um, maybe he camped out behind... Um, some, some grocery store and was digging around in the dumpster and that's how he got his last meal. And he stumbles into the synagogue, right? And James says he's come in dressed in rags. So, I mean, this guy, like, 
he, he didn't go to Goodwill and buy his clothes. He stole his clothes from the Goodwill donation box, right? That's how, like dressed in rags, right? And he's been wearing them for a long time. He says, if you show more respect to the man wearing the fancy clothes, the drippy clothes, and you say to him, hey, have this good seat over here. Uh, to the poor man, you say, hey, you stand over there or, or sit down on the floor by my feet then aren't you creating distinctions among yourselves? And haven't you made yourselves into judges with evil motives? You see, he's saying, you're just doing the same thing the Roman Empire is doing. You're doing the same thing the kingdoms of this world do, and they classify people based on status and wealth and appearance and, and abilities and age, right? And all that other stuff. He's like, stop doing that. Look with me to Ephesians 2, 14. Ephesians 2, 14. Ephesians 2. Where's that at? Ephesians 2, 14. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Ephesians 2, 14. He says, He says, For he himself is our peace. Yeshua is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall which divides us. By destroying in his own body the enmity occasioned by the law with its commandments set forth in dogma. He did this in order to create in union with himself from the two groups a single new humanity and thus make peace. In order to reconcile to God both in a single body by being executed on a stake as a criminal and thus in himself killing that enmity. So in other words, Paul is saying, stop all the distinctions. Stop all the classifying, right? We're all one in Messiah, right? Now, why would someone, let's just get kind of, get into the mind of a synagogue leader who would show this preferential treatment, why would he do that? Let's pretend it's me. A guy walks in with all these, these bling, right, drippy clothes, and the guy walks in with beggar's clothes, and, and I show him favoritism and have him sit up here. And you guys see that, right? And you're like, oh, why would I do that? What would motivate me to want to do that? Yes, Suzanne. Mm. Whereas with the poor guy, it would be to treat him not so well because of pressure from the other people that are connected with the Yeah, yeah, yeah. There could be negative associations, right? This guy might be a lot of work. He might be high maintenance, right? But the wealthy guy... They wouldn't want to stick around if he treats this guy. Yeah, yeah. I want to keep the guy that's got the money coming in, right? And maybe he's got good connections. He can pull some strings and city government for us. But then he's got some money. So whenever we need like that next building project, that guy can write me a fat check, right? Right? And, and so that is evil, James says, to do that. And, and here at, in our congregation, there are certain things and, and processes we have in place to prevent that from happening. Number one, I just don't care. <laughs> like, wait, what? Yeah, I, I'm not on salary. No one is. And it's like, I don't even know who gives what. I don't count money. I don't touch money. I don't do anything with money. Whenever I want to buy like a new kickball for the kids to play with, I ask for permission to do it with DMF funds, right? And for someone to come in and flash all these rings and everything, and for them to kind of like, here, kiss my ring, right? And I, you might want to keep me around. First of all, I would look at that person and be like, you are a sick human being because you probably use your status and your wealth and your power to exploit other human beings. You are sick and you're manipulative. Please leave, sir or ma'am. That's how I would respond. Right now, a human being who walks in and is wealthy and they don't flash it around 
Great. More power to you. Come on in. Right? Or a person that comes in in rags. Hey, let me tell you about Yeshua, right? You might be a lot of work for me. (laughs) You're going to cost me a lot of time. But that's the kind of people that Yeshua went after, right? That's the kind of people he went after. Now, where did I leave off? He says, um, he says, haven't you made yourselves into judges with evil motives? He says, listen, in verse five, my dear brothers, hasn't God chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and to receive the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you despise the poor and aren't the rich ones are those who oppress you and drag you into the court Aren't they the ones who insult the good name of him to whom you belong? Now, how many of you grew up poor? Now, how many of you still are? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, some of you grew up poor, right? There was one time, I, I don't like to sit, tell stories about my boys because my dad was a pastor and he would tell stories about me and embarrass me. But one of my boys, uh, this has been months and months ago, they, um, they wanted a new pair of shoes. And I looked at the shoes and I was like, there's nothing wrong with those shoes, huh? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, listen, let's wear those another couple months, all right? And then you know what he said? He goes, okay, so we are poor then. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, listen, listen to me. I was like, yes, we are. (laughs) I don't know what I said in response, but I was like, boy, you don't even know poor, okay? Like, how many of you, you remember your grandmother, or some of you still do it? Maybe you save your tinfoil? Maybe you save your tinfoil still? Yeah. How many of you come to my house and you see Stacy washing and drying out uh, Ziploc bags? Any of you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like sometimes people aren't poor, but they still live like they're poor. Right. And uh, you're like, man, come on. Let's just buy Ziploc bags, please. Yeah. Nice, nice, yeah. Very good, very good. I, I, I remember, um, I, remember I, I don't know if we were poor per se growing up, but I remember my dad had a phrase, and I'm going to let you guys figure it out later when you're on your way home. He would say, kids, if it's yellow, let it mellow. <laughs> if, it's, if it's brown, flush it down. I don't know if that is a thing that we were poor and we couldn't pay the water bill or... And then I remember my dad would have this black sock and it still smelled like his feet, even though it was like washed a little bit. But he had this black sock and he would all throughout the year, he would like stuff it with spare change. And eventually it was like this long tube of like spare change and he would tie it off at the end. And he'd be like, all right, it's time to go on vacation. Like, with a smelly sock full of pennies and dimes. And, and then he would, sure enough, he'd be at that restaurant, like opening up that sock and... Uh, no, it'd probably be like Chuck E. Cheese or something, spinning and all. But, anyways, yeah, the things we remember when we were poor. But the interesting thing about being poor, though, is you had a sense of like longing and desperation that you did not have when you actually had money, right? Some of you remember getting a new pair of shoes when you were poor, right? And you remember, man, I feel like I could run a million miles an hour in these new shoes. They feel so good on my feet. I could hear angels singing when I put these shoes on, right? Yeah, some of you remember that, and you're like, but you know, I, I worked super hard for this moment. And I saved, I remember I, when I was um, younger, I, I wanted a, a boom box that, that um, back in the 90s, kids, um, boom boxes were a thing. And it was like this, it had two speakers that were like towers. 
And then in the middle, you could put not one, but two cassette tapes in the things, yeah. And then you could actually steal music that way. You could actually take Mariah Carey's um, whatever playlist from, uh, what is she, I don't know. The Titanic theme track or whatever. No, that wasn't around then. And you could dub it onto a blank tape. Or you can make playlists and stuff and mixtapes. But I remember I wanted this one. I saw it in the Walmart catalog. And I didn't have the money. It was like $36. And I saved up and I saved I put it on. There used to be this thing at Walmart called Layaway. And you could say, I want that, but I don't have the money for it. And you would take it to customer service. And there would be a layaway desk at Walmart. And you would say, can you put this on layaway for me? And they'd be like, sure, yeah. And they would put it behind the counter. And then you'd come in and you would pay down until you, until you paid it off. And then they would give you the boombox. And I remember the day I took that boombox home and I set it on top of my dresser. And I put, in, I put in like DC Talk Jesus Freak on cassette. I put that in. And I played that as loud as that little boombox would play. But it felt so good getting that boombox. So good because I worked for every penny of it. And it's interesting because he says that when you're poor, it's a good opportunity, in other words, because God's giving you the kingdom of God. There's a special desperation and, and, and a desire within you, a burning desire within you for, for relief from that poverty. And that is what prompts you to depend on God, right? It's, there's a commensurate relationship with how much money you have in your bank to how much you depend on God, right? So it's only natural, I think, if we cry out for revival and for us to be dependent on God as a nation, that he would take the money out of our proverbial bank, right? And make us more reliant on him. So he says, um, verse 8, if you truly attain the goal of the kingdom law, the kingdom Torah, in conformity with the passage that says, and now he's quoting Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, your actions constitute sin, since you are convicted under the Torah as a transgressor. In other words, showing partiality and favoritism to other human beings is breaking Torah, is what he's saying. It's a big deal, right? So, in other words, we should treat the poor and the rich with the same level of hospitality. So, a rich guy walks in with all the drippy clothes and the bling. We don't tell him to leave. We show him hospitality. We show her hospitality. Right? But the same amount of hospitality that we show to the poor man. So, in other words, he's not condemning them for showing him hospitality. He's condemning them for showing him more hospitality than the poor man. You got that? So don't, here's what's happened sometimes. We get this Robin Hood mentality. Oh, you got money. You're a bad person. No. I mean, maybe. Verse 10. For a person who keeps the whole Torah, yet stumbles at one point, has become guilty of breaking them all. For the one who said, do not murder. I'm sorry, do not commit adultery. He also said, don't murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the Torah. Verse 12, keep speaking and acting like people who will be judged by a Torah, which gives eleutheria, or in, in translations, it's like a liberty in English, eleutheria. He says, for judgment will be without mercy toward one who doesn't show mercy, but mercy wins over justice. Now let's talk about this word eleutheria in the Greek. It is, um, 
it speaks to the idea of not being completely free, but rather independence within certain parameters. Okay, so it would be like, um, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation, 1863. Remember this? Uh, Abraham Lincoln says that by virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within the previously said designated states and parts of the states are and henceforward shall be free. And that the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authorities, thereof will recognize and maintain the freedom of said persons. And I further declare, oh, I skipped the part. And I hereby enjoin upon the people so declared to be free to abstain from all violence unless a necessary self-defense. And I recommend to them that in all cases when allowed, they labor faithfully for reasonable wages. And I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed services. And upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice warranted by the constitution upon military necessity i invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of almighty god in witness whereof i hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the united states to be affixed done at the city of washington on this first day of january in the year of our lord 1863 and of the independence of the united states of america in the 87th year Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States of America. So Abraham Lincoln frees all the slaves. Are they then lawless? No. He says, abide by the law. Earn a living, right? Reasonable wages. The order of our salvation is the same. You see, God selects us through grace. And he says, I want to save you. And then we have a free choice. Hearing the message of the gospel in grace, we have to choose. Do we accept it or do we not? Right? And that choice is ours and ours only to make. Then we accept the grace. And then do we just live like however we want to live? No, because no, that's, that's exactly what the world is doing. Right? What do we do? We live according to his edicts, his law, his constitution. Just like he selected Israel and Egypt by grace. I hear your cries, right? Apply the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your houses. And then he takes them out. And he's just like, okay, guys, good luck. Have fun out there. Do whatever feels good to you as long as you don't hurt anybody else. What does he say to them? No. Number one, he gives them the Sabbath right off the bat. And then he brings them to a mountain, right? And on that mountain, he gives them commandments. If you want to remain free and set apart and not fall back into slavery and idolatry like you did, follow these rules. But sometimes what happens is we get things out of order, don't we? We think if I follow rules, I get out of slavery. I get saved. No, 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 no. James is not saying that. Paul does not say that. Yeshua never said that. You get saved by grace through faith and that's it. And then you follow the rules, right? I always say that we are saved by grace, but we are rewarded by works. We're saved by grace, rewarded based on works. Anytime I bring up the W word, people, ooh, works. Yes, works are good. And we're going to find out here more in a second. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2. 
First Peter two. First Peter two. I'm gonna go to a different. First Peter two. And start with me in verse um, verse thirteen. Second Peter. I'm sorry. First Peter two thirteen. I keep saying the wrong thing. First Peter two thirteen. He says, for the sake of the Lord, now Peter is writing this, for the sake of the Lord, submit yourselves to every human authority as long as they're Republican. No? Every human authority, whether to the emperor as being supreme, now it's either Titus or Domitian who are the emperor, possibly Nero, but either way, bad dudes. He says, submit to the emperor, whether it's the emperor being supreme or to governors as being sent by him to punish wrongdoers and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that your doing good should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people. Submit as people who are, and there's that word, el eutheria, who are under liberty, who are under liberty. Submit to, as people who are el eutheria, free, Right? For it is God's will that you're doing good to silence the um, but, but not letting your freedom serve as an excuse to do evil. Rather, submit as God's slaves. Be respectful to all and keep loving the brotherhood, fearing God and honoring the emperor. Wow. That's intense, right? So let's go back to James chapter two. He says, verse 13, for judgment will be without mercy toward one who doesn't show mercy, but mercy wins out over judgment. Now, in other words, he's saying, show mercy so that God will have mercy on you. Go to Matthew 5, 7 real fast. I'm gonna show you who he's kind of echoing here. Matthew 5, 7. Matthew 5, 7. How blessed are those who show mercy. Why? They will be shown mercy. That's almost verbatim James right there, right? But where is Yeshua getting it from? Where do you think he's getting it from? Go to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Micah 6, 8. Turn there real fast. Micah 6, 8. It's one of the prophets. Micah 6, 8. He says, Human being, you have already been told what is good, what the Lord demands of you. He says, no more than to act with mishpat, justice, and to love chesed, chesed, mercy, and to walk in humility with your God. You see that? That's where they're getting it from. And God desires us to love justice and to love chesed. Now, there is a whole sect of Judaism called the Hasidim or Hasidic Jews. Have you ever heard of that? That's where that comes from. They're merciful. Hasidic. It comes from the, the root to be merciful. Okay? Now, mercy is this. Mercy is seeing someone who is in a lower position than you, whether that's economically or physically or whatever, is in a lower position than you and not kind of dominating them but putting yourselves in their position for a moment and doing what is called empathizing. That's mercy. And then acting on their behalf. That's chesed. Okay? And James is saying that you should have chesed now in this age so that at the judgment, God will have chesed on you. 
So what gets us chesed from God? Showing chesed to others, mercy to others. Let's keep going. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have pistis, but has no actions to prove it? Now, let me pause here and give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. This word right here, pistis, in the Greek, is the Hebrew equivalent of this word right here. Right to left is emunah, emunah. And you guys maybe have heard of that before, emunah. And does anyone know what that means? Faith. Faith. I don't know what happened to my marker. Emunah. So he says anyone that claims to have this stuff, pistis or in the Hebrew, emunah, faith. Now, I, I have no idea what faith means, right? When I look at faith in the, Hebrew, in the English language, I'm like, um, have a little faith. Was that, does that mean hope? Like, is that have a little hope? Was that the same thing as faith and hope synonyms? I don't know. But if you look at it in the original language, an emunah is tied to a physical action, because like every Hebrew word is tied to a physical action or thing. And it's actually used in this passage. Um, I know... Uh, I drew this earlier, and it was moving some of you to tears right now. And Ian helped me with the, uh, Ian wasn't here yet, but he got here just in time to do the sweat droplets. Exodus 17, remember Moses and the Israelites, they're fighting the Amorites. Remember this story? And then Moses is told, as long as you hold your staff up, the Israelites will be victorious in battle. And then naturally, over time, Moses' arms begin to weary. And then two guys, you guys remember their names? What are their names that come alongside him? Her. Yeah, Hur and Aharon, Aaron. They come alongside him, yeah. And he's like, here's Hur, he's saying, have a little emunah. And then Aaron's saying, I got you, bro, because it's his brother, you know, get it? So they hold his arms up. Now in Exodus 17, it says that when they steadied his arms, it uses the Hebrew verb emunah. Oh, you see how we have a deeper understanding now what faith is. When we pull it back into the Hebrew, emunah is the physical action of, of securing something. Something is secure now. Now I've got, I've got like two other guys steadying my arms. I am sure that I won't fall down. I'm taking a picture of me with my arm. You've got to pay extra for that, okay? And Munah. So, yeah. So let's go back um, to it. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have pistis or Munah, but has no action to prove it? Is it even faith? Is it able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. And someone says to him, Shalom, keep warm and eat healthy. Without giving him what he needs. What good does that do? Thus, by faith, th- thus, faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. So it, it'd be like if Aaron and Hur saw Moses getting weak, and they were like, oh, yeah, hang in there, Moses. Like, hang in there. Yeah, you got it, you know. Come on, you can do this, come on. And they started, like, cheering him on, you know. But what did they do? That's faith right there. They took a physical action. I'm going to, I got you, bro. Right? And... Let's keep reading. He says in verse 18, but someone will say that you have faith and I have actions. Well, show me this faith of yours without the actions and I will show you my faith 
by my actions. You believe that God is one. In other words, he's like, okay, so you have a certainty in your mind of something that God is one. Good for you. Even the demons believe that. And the thought makes them shudder with fear. So in other words, what James is saying is that when it comes to faith, faith does not equal just a inner mental certainty of something. Faith must have outward evidence. What does Hebrews 11.1 1 say? Faith is the what? evidence of something right and the substance of what we hope for in other words we can see it verse 20 but foolish fellow do you want to be shown that such faith apart from actions is barren now he's going to give us some examples of faith with with some actions here but let me before we do Can I take you to a couple verses and kind of set the stage a little bit? Look with me at Matthew 8, verse 1. Matthew 8, 1. Matthew 8, 1. And I'm going to show you how this verse is used and kind of bear this out. James is not making this up, in other words, and I'm going to show you how so. James 8, we're going to read 10 verses. After Yeshua had come down from the hill, large crowds followed him. Then a man afflicted with Zara'at came. He knelt down in front of him and said, Sir, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Yeshua reached out his hand and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. So did the man do anything? He reached out. He came and knelt down in front of him, right? And at once he was cleansed from his Zara'at. Yeshua said, See that you tell no one, but as a testimony of the people, go and let the priest examine you and offer sacrifice that Moses commanded you. And as Yeshua entered Kafar Nahum, a Roman officer came up and pleaded for help. Sir, my orderly is lying at home paralyzed and suffering. So, so you see the Roman officer came up to Yeshua. Yeshua said, I will go and heal him. But the officer answered, says, Sir, I'm unfit that you come into my home. Rather, if you only give the command, my orderly will, uh, will recover. For I too am a man of authority. I have soldiers under me and I say to this one, go. And he goes to another, come and he comes. And my slave, do this. And he does it. And on hearing this, Yeshua was amazed and said to the people following him, yes, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such pistis, faith. Now let's go to another verse real fast. Matthew, um, Matthew 9. Flip over a page. Matthew 9. And go to verse uh, 21. Matthew 9, 21. Some of you know this story here as well. A woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years approached him from behind. And what did she do? Did she just say a prayer? She just like hope. I hope he heals me. No, she reached out and she touched his robe. For she said to herself, if I can only touch his robe, I will be healed. And Yeshua turned and saw her. He said, courage, uh, take courage, my daughter, for your pistis has healed you. And she was instantly healed. Now go with me to Mark 2. Matthew, Mark, chapter 2. Mark 2. I'm trying to make a case here that pistis has always been accompanied with works. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. After a while, Yeshua returned to Capernaum, and the word spread that he was back. So many people gather around the house that there was no longer any room, not even in front of the door. And while he was preaching the message to them, Four men, what do they do? They just sit outside and pray? What do they do? They are carrying the paralyzed man. They cannot get near Yeshua because of the crowd, so they stripped the roof off the place where he was, and they made an opening in the ceiling and lowered the stretcher with the paralytic lying on it. And seeing their pistis, Yeshua said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
some Torah teachers sitting there thought to themselves, how can this fellow say such a thing as he's blaspheming? Who can forgive sins except God? But Yeshua answered, perceiving in his spirit what they were thinking. He said to them, why are you thinking these things? Is it easier? What's easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or get up and pick up your stretcher and walk. But look, I will prove to you that the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. So you see this, there was actions accompanied with a strong faith in, right? That that strong belief and certainty produced physical action, did it not? So let's keep going. He says, verse 21, now he's going to use ancient stories from the Tanakh to describe faith and pistis, uh, emunah. He says, wasn't Abraham our father declared righteous because of actions when he offered up his son Yitzchak on the altar? You see that his pistis worked with his actions. And by the actions, the faith was made complete. And the passage of the Tanakh which was fulfilled, which says that Avraham had a munah in God, and it was credited to him, to his account, his righteousness. He was even called God's friend. You see that a person is declared righteous because of actions and not because of faith alone let me ask you guys a question though as we begin to wrap up here can you have actions without belief absolutely i've seen it all the time can you have belief and no action tammy got it right can you have true belief and no action no You guys, when you came in this morning, you believed that the manufacturer of the chairs in which you were sitting was a good manufacturer and built a sturdy chair. Some of you believed more than others. But you sat down and you didn't really think about it. You didn't ponder. You didn't like get in there and test it out. Right. And you didn't you didn't like examine the bottom of it and test the tensile strength of the metal. You don't do that every week. Why? Because you have a certainty in your mind. Now, that certainty in your mind produced an action, and the action was, I'm going to sit down, right? But yeah, you can have actions without belief, believe me. And he says, likewise, verse 25, wasn't Rahav, that's, um, remember back in the, she, was, she hid the, the spies in, in the city of Jericho, the prostitute, she was declared righteous because of her actions, when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another route. Indeed, just as the body without a spirit is dead, so too, pistis without actions is dead. That's some heavy stuff, right? That flies in the face of some big mainstream theology out there sometimes, doesn't it? Now, what are the actions? (laughs) Because sometimes we get tripped up over this. There are denominations of Christianity that say the actions are uh, to only read King James Version um, that you have to uh, you can't have facial hair. Uh, you have to women must wear skirts 100 percent of the time and they can't wear makeup and they have to have long hair. They can never cut their hair. And, you know, there's like all kinds of denominations like that of Christianity. And I'm not saying that that modesty is bad or anything like that, but that you can't say that that's an edict from God. <laughs> right. The people if if you if you debase yourself from scripture and God's law, then you have to make up a law and you get into some trouble waters at that point when you make up your own edicts from God. 
Don't do that. Just follow his word. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're all, you're only ever following God's Torah or man's Torah. You're only ever you're, you're that's it. It's only two options. So some lessons I pulled from James chapter two are the following, and I want to hear from you guys what you have as well. A favoritism or partiality has no place in the body of Messiah and in our assembly. Favoritism can come in many forms, right? Number one, oh, he's wealthy or she's wealthy or they're more scripturally literate than I am. Or here's one I hear sometimes. They seem very spiritual. They seem closer to God than I am, right? Or, or maybe we do those things for an outward expression so that, so that we get favoritism. Here's a second lesson I learned that faith without righteous, now here's the key, Biblically ordained actions is not faith. You're fooling yourself, right? It's something else. It's like showmanship or it's placation of your guilty conscience or you're just misled. All right, you have been told the real gospel, which is you're saved by grace through faith alone and then you do works, all right? Number three, a person is saved by grace and rewarded by their obedience. Rewarded by their obedience. Now, doesn't Yeshua say this in the uh, Sermon on the Mounts that whosoever disobeys even the least of these commandments and teaches others who do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So how do you get your ranking in the kingdom of heaven? Apparently it's through obedience, right? So I just want to be as as obedient as possible. I'd rather... Uh, get to judgment, and he'd be like, oh, you didn't have to do that, you know, but that's fine. You know. <laughs> that's fine. But yeah, let's go to, let's close in prayer, and then we'll go to Q&A and get comments. Let's do that request. Abba, Father, I thank you for James and his, his faith, Father, and his emunah, his steadfast boldness to write this letter to us. So even today, in 2022, it's still timeless and very relevant. Father, I just pray that if there's people in the room who show favoritism, show partiality or lack actions, Father, that you would convict us and you would shape us into your image, into the conformity of Yeshua, Father. And I pray that what I've taught today would be edifying and encouraging to everyone in the room. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen.